Hi, this is Mia Ashton for Public, and I'm joined today by Dr. Stephen Levine. Dr. Levine is a clinical professor of psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University. He has written numerous books on sexuality, sexual function, intimacy, and love, and has decades of experience in the field of transgender medicine. Drawing on his vast experience, Dr. Levine has been calling for greater caution when it comes to the medical transition of minors, and indeed adults, arguing that we need to rethink the affirmative model of care, which is currently widespread in gender clinics all over North America. So welcome, Dr. Levine. Thank, Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Now, there's, there's so much to talk about, but I thought... Could we start by, if you describe for the listeners, your introduction to the field of gender medicine? Uh, well, that goes back to 1973 in the spring. Uh, uh, I was finishing my senior year of residency when I heard that uh, there was uh, a brouhaha on the surgical ward of university hospitals. The professor of urology had admitted a patient under the term chronic prostatitis, the diagnosis of chronic prostatitis, when in fact he was planning on removing the penis and scrotum and making a, a, what we call a neo-vagina um, or vaginoplasty. And the patient, uh, because this was a fraudulent thing, the uh, patient was discharged and, and the doctor was reprimanded. But he was the head of, of urology and nothing really happened to him except the patient was discharged. And the patient had no psychiatric involvement whatsoever. And that was, that was uh, at the time when I was just hired to develop clinics uh, to develop teaching in clinical sexuality for the medical students. And so before I, I was thinking clinical sexuality lectures were about erectile problems and orgasmic problems. And it suddenly dawned on everyone that there were some other dimension of problems that needed uh, attention. And so uh, in July of that year, when I was officially an assistant professor and responsible for developing lectures six months hence for medical students, uh, I realized that there was this phenomenon in those days we called it transsexualism. And so I got interested in this and in some grandiose way, I thought as a young man, my interest was in all things human sexual and all the suffering or the problems that people had with their sexual lives and their aspirations to have a wonderful sexual life. And so over the years, uh, I started a sexual dysfunction clinic and, uh, and, uh, and uh, within a year, uh, I also started a, a, ge a gender identity clinic. Um, and that was because uh, within the first week or two of being a faculty member, my previous supervisor had sent me a patient who told me that he was sitting under an oak tree with a gun in his mouth. And he decided that either was going to become a woman or he was going to kill himself. And my supervisor said there was an expert down at university hospitals 
uh, in sexuality. I had seen nobody at that point, basically. And, and this man came to me and he and I uh, had a wonderful journey together until eight years later, he have, having become a woman uh, as surgically and socially as possible, uh, the person hanged himself to death in 1983. So that was my introduction both to clinical sexuality and or transsexualism between the, the, the head of urology and my experience with uh, helping this man, my first patient, uh, become a woman. Uh, he, uh, she and I wrote a paper called Increasingly Ruth uh, uh, to describe the uh, our clinical experiences together. And then after uh, Ruth's death, uh, I wrote a little a letter to the editor reporting on Ruth's death by suicide. So that was my introduction. Uh, and uh, in 1973 uh, or 1974, uh, we started seeing people. And over the course of 18 years, we saw about 350 people uh, in our clinic. And now that would have been a very different cohort to the the patients filling gender clinics now, I would assume. Yes, uh, they were largely uh, males and they were largely middle-aged males. We did see some older teenagers, the 17, 18-year-olds. And uh, for, every, for every woman we saw, we probably, that is biologic female that we saw, we probably saw six uh, males. Okay, and do you do you have any thoughts on what caused the 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 shift that we're now seeing? It's mostly adolescent females who you would hardly have seen at all in the early days. Right. Well, I certainly have thoughts. But they're all speculations. Uh, I know people don't. People have alternate thoughts, and those those explanations are highly polarized. And so I, my thoughts are on one end of, of the spectrum. Um, perhaps I should tell you about the thoughts on the other end of the spectrum. Sure. Uh, before I tell you my thoughts. Uh, what I commonly hear from people on the other side is that there's no change in incidence uh, in the population whatsoever. And the only reason we're seeing uh, seven women, seven females for every man in some clinics now, is that uh, there's much more awareness of the transgender phenomenon and that there is effective treatment for uh, being uncomfortable in one's body because uh, one has a male sexual identity. And that uh, it's only because of education and and, a, and the, uh, the effectiveness of treatment that the incidence is apparently rising. Uh, now, uh, that's, that's the predominant uh, set, two, two ideas. I kind of think that the vast majority of uh, girls who want to be boys now begin to want to be boys around puberty. And there's now a new interpretation of pub pubertal angst in females. Uh, menstruation has never been easy for many, many young girls when it begins, especially those who bleed heavily or bleed frequently. Uh, uh, 
and if if a girl matures much sooner than her peers, there's also that kind of social embarrassment about being more womanly uh, than other people, uh, you know, their their friends or their peers. Uh, the internet has has uh, created access to information that never previously was before, uh, and uh, and so. There are elements on the internet, experts on the internet who interpret to uh, anx- anxious young girls uh, what, that their anxiety is not an, is not a normal thing. It's just an indication that they are they have been trans all along, and now it's just unfolding. Uh, <clears throat> there's also an enormous uh, sort of I think young people. Uh, especially young girls, have been very aware of the vulnerabilities that adult women and older women have in terms of being uh, physically abused or sexually abused or taken advantage of in a patriarchal society. And and I think they absorb these kind of things, uh, whether the, uh, fully consciously of it or not. I think it's horrifying to think that I'm one of a class that could, that feels particularly vulnerable to males. Uh, and so the combination of the internet, the, ch- the social changes, uh, uh, and the fact that this is, a, this is what we call an adolescent onset gender dysphoria, and it's very different than, than when, when little girls uh, from age three or four uh, feel identified as a boy, uh, <clears throat> which is the rare child these days. The other thing I think we need to talk about, uh, we need to think about from my point of view, uh, is that um, young people's responsibility, a, a wave of young people, not trans people per se, but young people are, they're in charge of reorganizing society. And what's going on sociologically beyond trans issue is what is a woman and what can a woman be? And, and uh, so the new generation is, is exploring what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And we're, we used to have clarity about this. And now with the women's movement has helped us to realize that for generations, if not for millennia, we have limited the, the opportunities of women to become a full human being based upon their capacities and not just their sex or their gender. And so I think the trans people are part of a larger social movement to redefine human potential as not limited by race, as not limited by gender. And and so I think the trans kids have their own internal psychological difficulties that make them want to escape themselves and recreate themselves as a new person. And you see a new person as a, as a female, I'm sorry, as a male, seems to be privileged in the basis of this. Now, I'm not so sure that 12-year-olds can articulate the forces that I've just talked about, but I, I think they affect us anyway. And I think they affect even cisgender girls and boys. And I've seen a transgender uh, boys, uh, transgender girls who, that is, who boys who want to be 
uh, girls identify with the with the the under uh, privileged women of the world and want to become them as part of a sociologic change. The, they want to be on the front lines of sociologic change. And so it brings me to this old fashioned idea that in every generation, whether it's in music or in politics or in the form of government, we have young people who are trying to change society. And I think that's a good thing. That's how society moves. But there are a lot of casualties in every movement, whether kids get killed in political uprising or, or, or girls turn into boys and then are not necessarily happy because they're not really boys, you see, because they're five feet two, little little hundred pound people. And so uh, it's, it's complex. And I certainly don't think it's simply that these girls have always been uh, transidentified because that's clearly not true. That's a lovely explanation. So on on that, on your sort of, there are some girls who they transition to live as boys and they're not happy. You, you wrote something lovely. I believe it was from a Florida affidavit that you had submitted. And it was about how people pin excessive hope on their transition and young um, adults, minors, whoever they believing it will sort of solve all of their problems or, or get rid of all of their mental health issues. So there's this really vast chasm between expectation, the expectation of transition and the reality. Do you think that there's a way to address that in the current system of affirmative care that we, that we now have in in gender clinics? Well, if I can answer that question in a roundabout way. Um, you see, all mental health professionals are not created equal in terms of the way they think about uh, diagnoses. And if you look very carefully at the legal testimonies uh, in courtrooms, about affirmative care, and then you pay close attention to what is happening when mental health professionals first meet a trans-identified person or someone who wants to talk about this. What, what is really happening is that the school of thought, which influences most of affirmative care, is that the mental health professional's job is to ascertain the diagnosis of gender dysphoria. So DSM-5-TR has a set of criteria that have to be met. And if the mental health professional does an evaluation and, um, and decides that the person meets gender, this diagnosis, the gender dysphoria, they feel like they can then recommend the treatment that affirmative care uh, exists with, you know, offers, but you first have to qualify for the diagnosis. Now, so that's one system of thinking, make the diagnosis and give the treatment. Now, the other thing they're supposed to do is to ascertain what other psychiatric diagnoses this teenager has, or this young person has. And in at least 70% of the time, and I want to emphasize at least 70% of the time. There are other psychiatric diagnoses like generalized anxiety disorder, social phobia, depression, eating disorder 
self-harm, suicidality, cutting. Sometimes we call that early borderline personality disorder. Uh, occasionally, I see someone who's 14 years old and is still having enuresis. Uh, and, and in a very large percentage of like 35% in most, most groups, or at least in some groups, uh, we have autism. So we have, we have these things that were in present before the current gender identity was formulated by the child. So the mental health professional in these clinics, I believe, are responsible for listing each of those diagnoses, calling them comorbidities, you see, and, and assuring the next person in line that is the, the pediatrician, the endocrinologist, who's going to give hormones or puberty blockers, um, assuring them that those conditions are under reasonable control or the psychiatrist or the, ment or the social worker or the counselor or the psychologist actually has this belief that all these problems are going to be either cured or ameliorated by gender transition and, and medical treatment, you see? Now, that's one, that's one way of thinking. And that's the affirmative care way of thinking. Is this person transgender in terms of, uh, in terms of our diagnostic criteria? That is, you, we know you can be transgender and not meet criteria for gender dysphoria. So is, does this person have gender dysphoria and what are the comorbidities and are they under reasonable control or do we believe that they will be improved if we tr medically transition the child or the teenager or the minor, whatever you want to say. Now, here's another way of thinking. That whole group is not interested in the origins the influences, the causes, the pathways to the diagnosis. They begin with the diagnosis and then move to the treatment. People like Dr. Levine, and sometimes I feel like I'm in a minority, but I actually know from talking around the world that I'm not in the minority. I mean, I'm, there are lots of people who think the way I do, that what's relevant to this teenager is how that teenager got to this place. What, what sometimes we call that the etiology. The, there's not one single etiology for gender dysphoria. There are multiple pathways to it. And if we're going to offer an alternative treatment, it, that treatment is depending on, one, the comorbidities and where they came from, and the idea that the transsexual identity is a solution to some problem and helping the child and the family identify what the problem is you see, and addressing those problems. The child is actually ultimately uh, in charge of how she or he is going to live their lives, right? But we have to address the pathways to this, and we have to teach the family that this is a solution. This is a conscious or unconscious solution to some other set of circumstances that is causing distress, profound distress, that makes the child want to escape what they associate with their sex or the gender that comes from the sex, the typical gender that comes from sex. That's a very different psychological framework for understanding. You see, my framework says, whoa, 
let's spend some time investigating. Whereas the affirmative care people say, well, let's make the diagnosis. Let's make sure the person is not too depressed or if they're depressed, let's give them a little Prozac, right? And then they'll feel better for, you know, briefly. And then get them to treatment because it's only the treatment that's going to cure this. And then people like me say, does it cure it? You see, and because we see a lot of problems in people who are uh, sort of adult transgendered people. So, so that's why we have controversy here, see? And I think it's really important to articulate alternate ways of thinking about the meaning of a diagnosis. And so many, many years ago in working with some of those 300 or so people I mentioned earlier, I think by 1980 or so, we, our group presented a paper called Transsexualism as a Solution, colon, what's the problem? And I think, you know, today I, I feel even more convinced about the wisdom of that, that title. Uh, it, is, it is still the burning question, I believe, in terms of the etiology, the sources of this. The, advert, the uh, affirmative care people actually, who are dealing with minors, uh, often think and articulate that, that a child can grow up to have a full, happy, accomplished life. Uh, and they don't have any data to support that. It's a belief system. Uh, and intuitively, you see many of us, especially parents of these children, uh, many of parents and professionals feel like, above all, do no harm. It's been for over 2,500 years that we, in medicine, we have said we do not remove healthy tissues and we do not alter the physiology of the body. And so intuitively, everyone who couldn't, who's not involved in this field, many people feel you're doing what? You're taking off what organs, you see, to in what age person? And so uh, many of the people who are asking questions are, are told that they are, they're labeled as transphobic people. And I want to label, I want to change that label. Uh, I'm not transphobic. I'm not afraid of trans people, you see. I'm trans wary. I'm trans worried. And I try to help parents realize that their intuitive worries about the future of, the, uh, of their child is not a reason uh, to, to be shamed, you see, that they should not allow their child to say, you're transphobic mother. Uh, the mother needs to say, you're, I'm trans worried and I'm worried about your future and my worries about your future need to be your worries and you're too young to even appreciate these worries, you see. So I, I'm trying to help parents and I'm trying to help kids understand the issues here. You see, the adolescents at 15 or so, uh, the society always makes use of adolescents' passion. You see, that's how why they're on the on the barricades changing society because they're clear about what's right and what's wrong, and they have a lot of passion. You see, but passionate certainty often gives way in the twenties 
to realizing things are more complicated than I thought. And so what we're up against here is the passionate certainty of adolescents who've been informed by experts on the internet and by their peers. You see, their other trans peers, or they identify with les with lesbians and gay people. You see, they're part of a, a discriminated against minority, and and they're passionate and they're certain. And in medicine, you know, very quickly, every medical student, uh, Mia, every medical student learns not to be certain. Uh, and and so. We have to recognize that the very characteristic of the adolescent is what can get some of them, a large percentage of them, in trouble. And so we're just trying to protect them, you see. And we're trying to teach the parents how to protect them, you see. But many doctors have taken, I think, take advantage of parents and teach them that the best thing and the only thing to do with the trans minor is to medicate them and to medicate them with hormones. And you know the unethical, horrible thing that is implied and sometimes said is that unless you do this, your child is going to suicide. And, and I'm, I'm personally horrified that a doctor would imply this uh, without, whose knowledge base about this is so limited it's just not correct. And while, you know, people suicide at every age in life, uh, but being trans is associated with suicidal ideation, but suicidal ideation is a far cry from completed suicide or a suicide attempt that is, that is lethal. And so we need to be very ethical about this. And we really need to better educate parents who, who are the only people who can legally give consent to these treatments. And so doctors need to tell the truth to parents about the uncertainties about, uh, about the outcomes of, of medicating with hormones uh, trans youth. Many doctors actually sincerely believe, Mia, and I, I don't want to, I, I, I want to emphasize the sincerity of their beliefs that this is not only relieving the distress of the child now, or the minor now, the teenager now, but it's giving them the opportunity to have a rich, full life of accomplishment. And that long-term outcome of what of medicating with hormones and surgery, teenagers, is not known. And see, they need to teach the parents that that's not known, that this is our belief because we recognize the suffering of your child. And I'm a doctor, I'm a pediatrician, I'm a pediatric endocrinologist. I wanna help the suffering of your child. This is very sincere, but you see, they don't have a long-term perspective and they, don't, they often don't have the knowledge. They have a belief that this enables them to have a rich, full life. And you know, considering the cost here, which is sterility, sexual dysfunction, and the inability to pair bond in a permanent way, let was just say marry, for example, uh, for adults who are transgender, uh, these are significant problems that will affect their adult psychology uh, and the course in their life. And so I think parents need to be told about this and need to measure the unhappiness of the current child and what will happen if the child continues to be unhappy you see, versus 
What happens if we make them a little less unhappy and get them preoccupied with their changing body, and which then they ignore other things because it's such a big deal to have your gender presentation change. So we, we need to help them see the complexity and the uncertainties. And so what I've written about in the past is I don't really feel like the affirmative care model is telling the truth about the uncertainties. And I do think that doctors have to be honest. And, and those people who are fall under the heading of doctors, you know, uh, like the social workers and the counselors and, you know, psychologists and so forth, uh, we all have to be on the same page, a commitment to honesty and to separate what science knows and what we believe. And, and beliefs are not what parents want from doctors. They want to know what the facts are. And, and part of the facts are the uncertainty of long-term outcome. Now, we do have some indications of the long-term outcome in terms of suicide. Or the suicide rates of adult transsexuals are much higher than the suicide rate of the general population. Not slightly higher, much higher. And so I think parents need to know this, especially when they're told if you... If, would you rather visit your son in a cemetery or, or welcome your daughter in your home? You see, these things are horrifying to me. I, I hope somehow that answered your question. <laughs> I'm sure it did. Um, it, that, that whole, the idea that a teenager or a child can somehow consent to signing away their fertility, their future chance of, of intimacy, their future chance of becoming a parent is, it's baffling to me. I mean, I, of course, we were all young once and I, I would think we should all remember what it's like. I, I recall being a teenager and I was sure I would never want children, absolutely positive. And all the way up to my mid twenties, I was sure. And then I hit 30 and I needed to have a baby right away. And then I had three and I was a stay-at-home mother and the rest is, you know, that's my life now. But this, there's a concept that you've talked about more than once that I find really fascinating. And I think perhaps this ex somehow goes some way to explaining the, the, how baffling this whole thing is. And it's the, the chain of trust in, in medicine and, how you you suggest that it it's broken in the field of gender medicine, which perhaps explains how we've gone in a strange direction that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to people. Could you could you explain the chain of trust? Yes, uh, um, uh, I stole this idea from an anthropologist who studied medical education. I can't even remember the person's name. I apologize to that person, but it's a wonderful description that if you're a medical student or you're a, a special a resident in some specialty, you have a series of diseases you have to learn about and you have to learn their, their under, our notions about the causes of them and the treatments of them. There are a very large number of diseases. I mean, I have a book in psychiatry, for example, called the DSM-5 and I, I think there are 300 diseases in that book, uh, approximately 300 diseases. Now, of course, no bright psychiatry resident is an expert in 300 diseases, right? Nobody's an expert, really, in more than a few 
tiny little things. So, so teachers teach medical students and older people, teachers teach residents what they need to know. And the, the consumer, that is the student and the resident trusts that the knowledge that is being handed down to them is based upon, upon solid evidence, right? This is what we know. These are the facts. Now, I just need to tell you that many medical students have had this experience where someone brings in a book in their specialty and, and say internal medicine. It, the book weighs 20 pounds. And it's, they, hand, they hold this book up in front of the class and say, 90% of what's in this book will not be true in 10 years. It, the trouble is that you and I don't know which of the 10% is really true and which is 90%, which is not. So when I said to you earlier, doctors learn to distrust certainty, you see, that's, that's symbolized, that little story symbolizes that communication. And so we have to believe, because we have to pass tests, you know, to get our MD degree and, and, to, get, and to graduate residency, to get credentialed as board certified. We have to pass what is currently the facts, right? I remember the facts I had to learn when I got board certified in psychiatry about the causes of depression. You know, today they're not the facts. <laughs> So, so what, I, what I'm saying uh, is that we must rely upon the chain of trust. And we assume the chain of trust that passes down from policymakers to educators to the consumers, the residents, and the medical students. We assume, we have to assume in order to survive, in order to graduate, that this chain of trust is trustworthy. But when people are older and they get involved with one particular disease, they study that disease, they begin to realize the uncertainties about the practice, what, about the chain of trust. And how medicine advances is that somebody doubts some fact in the book, you see, and then does an experiment or looks at the data and realizes that the chain of trust is not completely scientifically trustworthy. And all I'm saying is that like in other branches of medicine where things change all the time, actually every field and every disease needs to be re-examined re every five years. That's the standard in medicine. But in, in trans medicine, that's, that hasn't been true. It, it's much closer to every 10, 12 years. And uh, anyway, so, all I'm saying is, as in the rest of science, clinical applications to the transgendered youth need to be appreciated in terms of the uncertainty of knowledge. And, and when I said before that it is the fashion to treat, it is not necessarily the scientifically established uh, mechanisms of treatment. People get sucked into believing what they're told. Now, many people, I, I, I don't mean to sound too narcissistic about this, but recently, about five years ago, I had someone who just came out, just got qualified as a master's with her master's degree to come work 
uh, in a group where other people are watching her group. And she came and I brought her in to, with a, fam a new family with a trans adolescent. And afterwards, she told me how that child should have been treated. And she didn't, she didn't like it that I didn't use the child's name, a preferred name, uh, when talking with the, the parents and the child together. And we had this argument about, well, I would, we had a disagreement, but what about how, how to evaluate a, a family like this? And she was certain because she was told, she was taught how to take care of trans people. You have to affirm them. And you have to teach the parents about not to be transphobic. And so what I couldn't get over, and, I, and I've had this experience repeatedly, young people have taken the chain of trust as trustworthy, and they're certain about how to treat these. Now, when you're young, when you're a young mental health professional, it's really important to think that you, you know best how to take care of this, right? You're taught how to take care of these things. On the other hand, if you listen to a person like me that the chain of trust is not trustworthy, I'm trying to insert in a young person's mind that they're smart enough to recognize the limitations of knowledge and to accept it and not to run to certainty because nothing is certain, you see? So young people sometimes tell me how wrong I am. Now, I'm not sure that they're wrong. I'm not sure I'm right. You see, I'm uncertain. I don't know how to best take care of these kids. I know what they want. And I know many of them, or at least some of them, are going to be very regretful. And the chain of trust tells young people that only one or maximum 2% of people who ever transition regret it. I know that's not true. But that is what is published. That is what is fed to young people, you see? And so when you bring up this idea of the chain of trust, I think it's a crucial idea. And and I, I certainly wish I thought of it, but I didn't. <laughs> now, you, you say that it's more than, what, one or two percent? But we have, we have no numbers on regret rates. Is there a reason why, is there something special about gender medicine that makes it, there's a distinct lack of follow-up, long-term follow-up of these, of these patients. Is there a reason why we can't track the outcomes? Is that normal in medicine? Well, uh, that raises the question of what we mean by the natural history of disease. Um, the natural history of uh, acne, we know, for example, most people will outgrow it without any scars, but people with what we call severe acne are going to have scars on their face and their back and their chest, right? The natural history of untreated acne is known in terms of percentages, right? The natural history of shingles untreated is known. There's going to be a small percentage of people who are gonna have chronic pain and in order to avoid that misery, we now give people uh, vaccinations for shingles, right? Now, the natural history of disease is, is begins with the concept of the untreated, what happens to it? 
what is not clear is what is the natural history of a 13-year-old girl who doesn't like her breasts and her menstruation and being a girl? What happens if you leave her alone? Now that we would like to know the natural history, but some people have a belief that that woman, that young woman, that girl will suffer for the rest of her life. This, the same thing she's suffering with is the incongruity between her gender identity. They don't know that. That's not known, right? So, so you're asking why that is. And the answer is because a number of people are passionately convinced, not just convinced, but passionately convinced that without treatment, that girl will suffer the rest of her life and perhaps will suicide eventually because she feels she doesn't like living in, in her female body in this for the next 30 years, this menstruating body, you see, this body with breasts that people are going to stare at and want to touch or something, you see. So, so we don't have the natural history of this disease. Now, the other question is, what is the natural history of the treated patient? That girl, if we treat her. So I've already told you that the passionate advocates believe that they're giving her a chance to have a wonderful life, to live in consort with her body, to live comfortably with her body. Even though 70% of the girls who have their breasts removed and live as trans males maintain female genitality. And so they live not, see, the, doc, the young affirmative care doctors, or not that, I mean, that the affirmative care doctors think that they're curing the gender dysphoria by removing the breasts of 15-year-old and 14-year-old and 18-year-old women, girls, and trans male. But most of those people, that is at least 70%, will live the rest of their lives with female genitals. Now, I, that assumes that there's no incongruity, that I present myself as a male and I have a vagina, you know, and, and, but I don't menstruate because I'm taking uh, hormones and so forth. So I don't really think that we cure gender dysphoria. I think we change, a we have a different form of gender incongruence and we have to live and we have to select people to be intimate with who don't mind the fact that I'm a male with, with a vagina, which they, I, you can find people like that. It's fine. That's great if you can do that. I'm just saying I don't think most people can do, are going to be going to be able to do that. So, uh, so the Nazi. So if I say the natural history of untreated gender dysphoric minors is unknown, I'm also saying, Mia, that the natural history of treated gender dysphoric females who are trans males and or trans females the other side is true too the natural history of the of the treated people is not known however we do have some evidence not from the kids that we treated when they were 13 and 14 or 11 or 9 you see but we do have evidence about the natural history of trans adults who are treated and they have continuing, many of them have continuing mental health issues, and they have a higher death rate. And the higher death rate, which has most recently in this year been 
redocumented in, in an article was published in JAMA in January, the increased death rate is about 34% higher death rate from all causes. So we have this evidence that we may not, the natural history of treatment does not cure people and so that they don't become uh, the same indistinguishable tradi- uh, 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 statistic uh, from the cis, compared to the cis general, the cis population, the general population. So if we go back to informed consent, see, I believe that the parents who are consenting for their 11-year-olds to get treatment, this kind of treatment, ought to know about these things, you see. The kid can't conceptualize this. You know, 11-year-old says, I don't want, just like you said, I don't want to have babies until you're 30 and the maternal instinct begins screaming inside your psyche, right? Anyway, so this whole idea of natural history has to be divided into untreated and treated. And unfortunately, we don't have the uh, complete information and the idea that you ask a question why we don't have that idea. And I think it's because we have passionate people who believe that it's a civil right to get treatment, the treatment that you want, however that wanting came about, you see. And, and they believe that they know this is best, even though factually they don't know that this is best. And they don't know that they don't know. You, can you follow me? <laughs> yeah. So I'm saying the people who think differently than me are very sincere. They're not evil people. They're trying to help. But I think the science... You know, one of the ethics of medic, one of the medical ethical principle is that our 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 interventions need to be based on science, and so the alternative the alternative way of opposing Dr. Levine is to say, well, it is based on science. It's based on the best evidence that we have, and Dr. Levine is saying the evidence that you have is pretty lousy. And you are really changing the life course of individuals who are too young to make this decision themselves. And therefore, you need to teach the parents who, however educated or uneducated may be, have a right to know what the facts are. And therein lies the great controversy between people that I'm going to represent, me as representing a camp, and people who are, who are absolutely convinced of affirmative care. And I want them to acknowledge that these, these are controversies, these are unanswered questions, and that they're operating in the face of this. But I'm afraid that in order to do this, you need to have a passionate belief that you're helping these people. And, and so I ask, what happens if you're wrong? You've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.